So uh, if you could, you have your Bibles with you this morning, open up to Colossians chapter 3. Um, we are continuing this series in Colossians, and uh, we've been spending a lot of time in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, uh, what we've been really focusing on is, is Jesus, uh, which is pretty amazing. Uh, so, so Paul, uh, as he's writing this letter, he's, he's reminding people continually of who Jesus is, what Jesus has accomplished. And that's really, really significant because uh, what he's going to start to talk about is an idea of change. He's going to talk about how our lives actually change as a result of what Jesus does in our lives. And, um, and, and so I think it'd be valuable for us just to, to, to discuss this idea of change a little bit because in our culture, um, it, it's pretty interesting. Um, there's, there's an increasing value for change. I don't know if you, uh, if I could just look at my peers and even what my peers would post on social media and that kind of stuff, there's, there's really an increasing value for behavioral change. So, so some common examples of this would be like New Year's resolutions, right? So, uh, so it's good. We, we recognize that it's good. At the start of a new year, we decide that we're going we're gonna to be better about something. I don't know what that thing is, but but we decide, and then, you know, eventually, like, two weeks later, we kind of slack off, and then uh, two more weeks later, we completely forgot that we made that resolution, right? But there, there is a value there to say that, that change is good. Change is important. Um, there is this value, even for people who, like, don't, don't necessarily um, even go to church, there's a value for giving up something for Lent, um, so you see that people in, in honoring Lent, they, they will give something up. They will change something about their lives, even if it's like I'm giving up chocolate or I'm not going to do social media or something like that. People give up something for Lent, even if they don't necessarily attend church. So you see there is this, this value for change. And then um, the mo- I think the, the most common time that people actually change is when they have to make decisions for the sake of other people in your life. So, uh, so it's funny. I have some friends from high school um, who who did not make good decisions? Let's like let's put that lightly. And and now those friends have kids, and um, those friends are making better decisions now. Uh, it's it's actually pretty interesting. Like once you have children and people that you're responsible for, you somehow magically start changing and making better decisions. And and it's interesting if you took those like kids out of their life and they they didn't exist like it. Like, they pretty much acknowledge, yeah, we would be making those same decisions still. But because we have those people in our life, we have, we've made this kind of change. And so, so there is a value in our culture for change. Um, now, those are typical changes that have existed in, in, in people's lives for a long time. Like, New Year's resolutions, they're not a new thing. Um, making changes for the sake of other people in your life, like, that's not a new thing. But there are some new, uh, new trends in, in the realm of personal change that have arisen even within the last few years. Uh, it has a lot to do with the advancement of technology. So uh, I read this article. It was published in uh, 2017, and this article was called A New, uh, a new Culture of Self-Improvement. So uh, it, uh, I'll, I'll just give you an exa- a few examples of, of how the culture is like really valuing this idea of change. So 17% of people have booked something called a fitness holiday. Now, I don't know what a fitness holiday is, but I can tell you it does not sound like a holiday to me. Like, like a fitness holiday doesn't sound exciting, but apparently there are 17% of people who have done this compared to 
only 5% of people who have booked a holiday uh, where they would be drinking. You know, that, like, that, and that's, that's the comparison in our culture. Um, there is, uh, on our devices, constant access to things like uh, TED Talks. TED Talks have actually, uh, they've arisen to the top in recent years. And what they are, what TED Talks are, are they're, they're videos, um, or at least we see them as videos, of, of, of people who are literally there to give us information and develop us as people. And this has become a really popular form of media. Um, uh, YouTube, the YouTube education channel, channel has 10 million subscribers to it. Like there is like this, this technology is brought to the forefront, this interest in us being able to change, to better ourselves, to, to become self-improvers. Um, these are called, uh, so our devices, the, the, the things that we have access to, these are becoming, they're, they're called more and more habit-forming technologies. So that you can actually, um, more now than at any point before, you can set a reminder on your device to stay on top of your goals. So, so you actually have things to help you manage uh, your self-improvement process. So in case anything might, like even, even prayer, like I know many people who, who set reminders for prayer inside their phone to, to, to pray at certain times during the day. Like we can use these devices to, to, to train us. And, and what's happening is that people in our culture, they, they are using these to... to to head towards self-improvement. Self-improvement is becoming really, really popular. And this is, so, so a decade ago, um, there was a different value. And that value was saying that I have arrived. We, we, um, we would acquire things that, that were status symbols of the fact that we have somehow arrived in our society. So, so this, this article actually had a quote. It says, the Rolex, which was popular, popular about a decade ago, the Rolex says, you've arrived but the Apple Watch says you're arriving, which means that you are still developing, you are still growing. So if you have an Apple Watch, it's that thing that keeps you on top of your goals. It's that thing that says you're arriving. And and arriving, being a developing person instead of a developed person, is actually becoming a value in our culture. Um, even Even if you personally make a change in your life that other people don't care about, whenever you tell somebody about that change, they're like, oh, that's really good for you. I'm really happy for you that you're making that change, that you're improving yourself. Um, so it, so even, even if you're like, I'm getting, I'm getting my life right with God, and you're talking to somebody who doesn't even really care about their life with God, they usually say, oh, good for you. That's really good. I'm really happy for you. So there's this value. Personal change for the better is celebrated. And I actually love it when I see my friends like trying to, trying to better themselves. That's really good. Okay, that's good, but, and this is, this is a really big but, the Bible tells us that we have a core problem that needs to be changed before any other change is really effective. We have a core problem that, that needs to be changed, and that problem is this. This is what Scripture tells us, that we are dead. Now, I don't, I, I haven't like watched a whole number of dead people um, have the ability to change themselves out of that state. Like that's 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 just a reality of what it means to be dead. Dead people can't actually change the fact that they're dead. 
Um, so, so we have verses uh, like Genesis 2.17, where God tells Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely very good. Okay, so this is, this is the beginning of death in the human race. You shall surely die. And then Ephesians 2.1 says, you were in your trespasses and sins. Very good. Uh, the mindset of the flesh is set on death. Very good. Okay, okay. You were, this is Colossians 2.13, which we're in. We've already covered this, right? So you were what? in your trespasses, in your transgressions, right? So this is like uh, uh, Paul and these different writers of the New Testament, they're set on, on reminding us of the fact that naturally in ourselves, we are dead, which means that we actually have no power, no matter how many reminders we set on our phone or, or how many habit-forming technologies we use, we don't have the power to bring ourselves from death to life. There's a core problem that needs to be fixed before any real change is effective. So the primary thing that needs changing is not actually our behavior. I want to talk about some some symptoms of death, and then we'll figure out what actually needs to be changed. So some symptoms of death, of this reality that exists inside of us. Uh, We tend to seek our own good instead of the, the, the good of others around us. Or if we do seek the good of others around us, it's ultimately for our own good. Uh, we have no righteousness inside of us. Uh, the thoughts of our hearts are actually naturally in opposition to what God wants for us. And so we are, are we're by nature self-worshippers. We spend our lives primarily uh, making sure that we get what we want and what we need. This is who we are by nature. This is what it means that we are dead. So the primary thing that needs changing is not our behavior. The primary thing that needs changing is our hearts because our hearts are dead and they need to be brought to life. So behavioral change is good. And I, I'm, I'm happy that there's a value in our culture on behavioral change. But if the deeper heart change doesn't take place, then the behavioral change is of no ultimate value. So Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness, all of our good behavioral change is like filthy rags before God. Uh, because, Because of that heart change doesn't exist, because people make all sorts of behavioral changes for their own sake, but they don't have a heart of worship to God because God has not awakened their hearts. And so all of that good change, well, cool, but, but God says it's of filthy rags. There's also a prophecy that says, that, that talks about this change that needs to take place. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, when he's talking about when, uh, when the Messiah is going to come, when the rescuer of Israel is going to come, this is, what he, what, this is what God is going to say to his people. This is what he says. He says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take your heart of stone out of you. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. So what he's talking about there is like the primary thing that needs to be changed is your heart. Like this is what's going to happen when Jesus comes. So, so Paul is transitioning in this point. So we're in Colossians chapter 3. It's a long introduction, but we're in Colossians chapter 3. And what he's doing is he's transitioning to talk about behavioral change. He's going to talk about the kinds of changes that would exist in our life if we are Christians, and this passage is like a bridge that takes us from all the things in chapters 1 and 2 that, that, that talked about who Jesus is, and it bridges us over to these ideas 
of behavioral change, but there's something really, really important that he wants to get straight first before he starts talking about these changes. So, Colossians 3, verse 1. He says, If, if then you have been raised with Christ. If then you have been raised with Christ. So I have a question. Is Paul talking to every single person imaginable here in this verse? Well, he's, he is, but he's the people that he primarily has in mind, he's saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, which means he's assuming whatever he has to say after this is going to apply to people who have been raised with Christ, to people who have uh, been wakened, their hearts have been brought to life. So, uh, so the, the, the issue is that whenever we read anything that Paul writes about behavioral change, we tend to treat it like it applies to everybody. Uh, but Paul, these changes that he's going to call for, he, he's saying primarily the, the, the important thing before we get to those changes is that you have been raised with Christ. So he says, if you have been raised with Christ. So everything he says from this point doesn't matter if that's not true of you. So he's, he's actually going to talk about some radical behavioral changes that need to, to take place. He starts talking about those in verse 5. But, but that change necessitates a newness of life. And so I want to I start with a question this morning. That is, how can we know if we are raised with Christ? How can we know if we are raised with Christ? And this is important because Paul tells us in other places to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And Jesus even says, uh, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, um, and didn't we do this for you? And didn't we cast out demons in your name? And, and Jesus says, and I'm going to say to some of those people, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So, so I think it's actually important that we would ask ourselves this question, how can we know if we are raised with Christ. So as I go through um, these, I'm going to have sort of three categories of questions that we can ask ourselves. And as I go through these, I I invite you to to note the ones that you might struggle to answer with a yes. So here are three categories of questions. Uh, The first one is, uh, what do I believe about personal sin? So uh, so I'll ask, uh, there are a series of questions that fit into this. Uh, Do you believe that you are a sinner? Uh, do you believe that your sin is the most awful kind of rebellion against God? So, uh, so if I could be honest and a little transparent with you, this one was hard for me. As a, as a new Christian, it was hard to see how my sin was actually rebellion against God. How it, how it was actually like the most awful kind of thing that could exist inside of me. This was really hard for me to see. Do you believe that your sin is so blatantly against God's good desires for creation, that you have no power to reconcile your relationship with God? Do you actually believe these things about your own personal sin? So that's, that's like the first category. And if you would say yes to all of those, then I would say we're on a really good track. So the second category of questions is this. What do I believe about Jesus? So do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that Jesus died in your place, taking the punishment that you deserve for your rebellion? Do you believe that in his death, he gives you his righteousness so that you can actually stand before God pure and holy and blameless? 
Do you believe that he rose from the grave, showing us how powerful he is to break the curse of sin and death that, that stands against us? So, so do you answer yes to these questions? Do you believe those things about Jesus? Because if you can answer yes to those questions, then I would say we're on a really good track. And then the third, so those two, I would say those two are like non-negotiable categories where we need to be answering yes to those questions. Uh, the third category is a little more negotiable, but this is the one where we kind of, uh, we might have some concerns. We, this, is, this is a little more iffy. This one is not as black and white as the first two categories. So the third category is this. Is my personal affection for God increasing? Is my personal affection for God increasing? So is there uh, in you, and this is what I mean, so affection, uh, the, the hard part about that is that sometimes what we can turn that into is like, am I having like a lot of emotional experiences? Like, and, like when I went to youth camp back in the day and then we would play the, the special worship songs and everybody would be very emotional and then there would be an altar call and everybody would go up forward and get, uh, and get saved for like the 50th time and all of this stuff, right? These, like that, that's, uh, you might think that that's what I'm talking about. But that is not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about any sort of uh, hyper-emotional experience. But, but what I'm asking is, is there in you a genuine desire to follow and obey the king of all existence? Is there in you a humbling of self more and more, and more and more of a submission to whatever God would have of you? Uh, is there in you a desire to take following God seriously? Like, and, and so if, if you struggle to answer yes to those questions, um, that's where the heart change comes in, right? So you might answer yes. You might be able to intellectually affirm the first two categories. The third one is a little bit harder. The third one requires some heart change. But if you, if, if you can answer yes, if you can see trends in your life where more and more, yeah, you can see a personal affection for God developing, well, that's good. And then you can, you can consider yourself, yes, I am raised with Christ. And the purpose of that is we have to establish who Paul is talking to, who, who the people are that he is actually expecting to change. So verse one goes on and he says this, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, then he's going to tell you to do something. He's going to say, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, so Paul, he, he sees what he's talking about here. This is the beginning of the changes that he's going to talk about. So he sees what he's talking about here as the fuel for the behavioral change that's going to take place in the life of the Christians that he's talking to. So he wants to make sure that they always start with Jesus. That any change that they're going to that, that partake in always starts with Jesus. And this is, by the way, why he spends the entire first two chapters of this, uh, of this book talking about Jesus. Because he, he doesn't want them to step into the behavioral change without their focus being on Jesus. Because behavioral change without looking to Jesus, without being grounded in the gospel, what that can very likely lead you to is personal pride, which is another form of sin. So I want to talk to you about how this change process works, how setting our focus on Jesus, how setting our minds on Jesus actually works to produce heart change inside of us. So Paul, he's operating off of a, a set of basic assumptions, or, or one big basic assumption, and that is this. Changing your focus leads to a changed heart. 
This is the basic assumption that he is working off of. Changing your focus leads to a changed heart. So I want to present something to you that I call the flywheel for heart change. This is the flywheel for heart change. So, so this is the, the assumption that, that Paul is working from, that if your focus is set on Jesus, then that will produce the kind of heart change that you need to produce the kind of behavior change that comes for Christians. So the first, the first step in this flywheel for heart change is this. My focus is set on Jesus. So, uh, so when I look to Jesus, um, I understand the kind of love that God has for me. Um, I understand the kind of God that he is. I understand that he is holy. When I dig into scripture and I set my focus on things that are above, uh, I, I understand how good God is. I understand actually like, how his judgment can take place because he is so pure and holy and because like, people, people have, have rebelled against him. People have defiled his good nature, his good intentions. And so, uh, so I can look at him and I can see his character and I can see that, that some of the places where judgment takes place, that, that, that's a part of his goodness. Uh, I can see uh, his desires for me, for the kind of the person that he wants me to be. So as I set my mind on things above, I actually begin to understand who God is. And what that does is that actually leads me to the next step where God reveals my brokenness to me. So the more I gaze upon God for who he truly is, uh, the more my own dark motivations, the, the desires of my heart, that deadness that we talked about begins to show up, the more that it, it becomes apparent to me. And this actually, this can be a hard place sometimes. So uh, um, there are different uh, writers throughout Christian history who have talked about something called the dark night of the soul, where, where they, um, they encounter who God is, they see God for who he truly is, and then they say, woe is me. It's like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, when he sees God for who he is, he says, and he sees the angels uh, around God's throne singing, holy, 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 like see, sees everybody worshiping God. He, he looks at himself and he says, woe is me, for I'm an unclean man with unclean lips. This is the experience that comes when we see God for who he truly is. And this can be a hard place. But then, but then the good news comes from that, right? The next step, step three, Christ paid for that brokenness with his blood. That's the reminder that we've been getting all the way through the book of Colossians, and that as you look at the entire New Testament, you'll come to understand is that that Christ paid for our brokenness with our blood. So not only do we not have to face God's just punishment for our sin, but because of Jesus, God actually looks at us, even though we are broken people, he looks at us and he sees us as righteous and holy and blameless and good. And he calls us his beloved children. Like these are the kinds of things that, that happen. And so as we set our mind on things above, as we set our focus on Jesus, we begin to understand this more and more. And what that does is that takes us to the last piece, which is a deeper affection for Jesus develops. So, and that leads us to, again, set our focus on Jesus. And so, the more, so if you don't know how a flywheel works, I barely know how a flywheel works, so give me a second here. But, uh, but what happens is that uh, a flywheel is a part of a machine where, where it takes some energy. It takes some strong energy to get it started the, the first time. But once it has the momentum, it actually carries itself on pretty effectively. So, so it takes a little bit of energy. It takes a few turns the first few times around to get it going. But once it's going, 
that, that affection develops more deeply, which leads us to want to pursue Jesus even more, which, which leads us to, to see God and for him to re- reveal more and more of our brokenness, which is uh, why some of, the, some of the, the, the most holy people I know, some of the people who are following Jesus more and more faithfully, they, they understand just how deep their own brokenness is. And these are people that are good people. Like people would look at them and say, yes, these are, these are right and good people, but these people see their own brokenness uh, more and more and more. But then they become so much more thankful that God has done what he has done in Jesus. And this, it, it, it turns this flywheel over and over and over. So that's, that's important because Paul's then going to move into verse 2. And he's going to say this. He says, set your mind on things that are above. So he reminds them as if they could forget. He just said it in the previous verse. But he says, set your mind on things that are above and not on things that are on earth. So, uh, so there is something about things that are on earth that can actually pull us out of this system, out of this flywheel. And so, so I would actually say that the culture, that the earth, that the world that it has its own sort of flywheel that it wants to get us caught up in. And that starts with step one, I get distracted. So actually, that can happen at any point along this flywheel, that me getting distracted. It can happen at any point where uh, something comes in, something pulls our attention away from Jesus, and we become more focused on something of this world. We give something a place in our hearts that it doesn't deserve. We spend our time, our energy, our focus in places that, that, that take our focus away from Jesus. And the next thing that happens after that is that we become content. We become really content with the spiritual progress that we've made. We say things like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of I'm, I'm okay with where I am with God right now. Well, and it's, it's good to be happy with your relationship with with Jesus. Like, don't, don't mishear me on that. But we become content with our level of personal growth, our level of sanctification. And so, so, uh, so this one is where we get really comfortable. So remember how step two and the other one was really uncomfortable. God reveals my brokenness. That, that's a really uncomfortable, that, that's a really hard place to be. Well, step two over here, where we become content, it's a really comfortable place to be. It's really easy to sit in that place. And then as we become more and more content, our focus isn't on God. And so our brokenness, it doesn't become as burdensome or as noticeable as it used to be. We say things, well, at least I'm not X, Y, or Z. At least, I, at least I'm going to church every Sunday. At least, you know, we have these excuses. And that takes us to the third piece, which is this. We operate as if we don't actively need God. I had a seminary professor who uh, talked about uh, you know the song, I need the every hour? I need the every hour. Because that's a reminder. Yeah, we need God all the time. He's like, he's like they shouldn't have said, I need the every hour. He said, they should have made it like more, I need the every half hour or something like that. Because that's like our active need of God is ever present with us. It's ever in front of us. We actively need him to sustain us. We actively need him to show us the direction that he wants to take us on. Um, and, and so what happens when we operate as if we don't actively need God, is that, that prayer diminishes or even disappears sometimes for seasons in our life. That self-sufficiency takes over. That our personal pride kicks in. We might, we might intellectually affirm, 
Uh, we, might, we might agree that, yes, we need God all the time, but our actions don't show that we actually believe it. And then the, the fourth thing that happens from this is that sin starts seeming less and less problematic. That as we engage in this flywheel, as we allow ourselves to be distracted, as we give uh, uh, things a place in our heart that they don't deserve, that, um, that things that once seemed like really clearly wrong, uh, they don't seem quite so wrong anymore. Uh, that we might actually be led to go places that we would have never gone before. But, and, and this is what happens if you stay here long enough. Now, now, if we're alive in Christ, the amazing thing is, is that um, if we spend our time over in this realm, he will actually like pursue us into that place, and he'll try to wake us up out of it. He will send us reminder after reminder to bring us back over to this one. And I can tell you that like from personal experience. That's the really cool thing is that God pursues us even when we're making decisions to lift up and, and worship other things in our heart that we shouldn't be. He pursues us into that place and he reminds us that he alone is worthy of our worship. And so, does this mean, and I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to clarify this as a good question, does this mean that things like leisure and entertainment are bad? And I want to say really clearly, Things like leisure and entertainment are not bad. We're the bad ones. We're the evil ones. We're the ones who give those things a place in our heart, a place in our time, a place in our energy that we don't deserve. In fact, those things, uh, they're, they're, just, they're morally neutral things. And in fact, sometimes those things can even be used to exalt our hearts towards Jesus. So it depends on what we do with those things in our heart. And so the self-reflective question that we have to ask is what position do we give those things in our heart? So I want to I want to give you a personal illustration about me and my relationship with video games. Uh, I was I grew up as a, a a gamer. I spent a lot of time playing video games, and particularly in the college, um, what I discovered is that I gave those things a very high priority in my time. I gave I lifted those things up a little too highly, and this is what that led me to do. It led me to neglect my relationship with the Lord. And then from there, I got really uh, content with my spiritual progress. I got really comfortable in that place. And then, uh, and then I started making willful, disobedient decisions, willful, sinful decisions, rebellious decisions that I knew God didn't want me to make, that, that I had become kind of uh, desensitized to because I, I let those things distract me from my relationship with the Lord. Now, the Lord graciously found other ways to get my attention, other ways to set my focus on Him. And that led me to the accountability of others. And, you know, actually for a season, I had like 100% no video games. I, had, I like sold systems. I got rid of stuff. Uh, and I had no, I could not give that thing. I had to make sure that it didn't have a place in my life that it used to have. And so through this season, the Lord actually reshaped my affections for him more and more because I had to remove this other thing that I had lifted up too high. And I don't say that so that you know what it was that I did, but I say that because I believe that my earlier life is, is an illustration of why Paul is saying what he's saying here. That, that we can let our focus go to places that it shouldn't go. And that when it goes there, our hearts will be led away from Christ. But if we set our focus on Christ, if we engage that flywheel, 
he will lead us into the kinds of heart change that he desires for us. So then he goes on in verse 3, and he reminds us, for you have died. This is like the eighth time. Like, I don't know if there's like anything that he reminds us of more and more in this book than this. Like he wants us to know that this is who you were. Apart from Christ, you were dead. And he wants their identities to be consumed with Jesus. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is who you are now. Everything about who Jesus is defines you. Every inheritance that Jesus would have got as the son of God himself, you get to be a recipient of. He sees these things so clearly. And he wants the Colossians, he wants these people, these Christians that he's writing to, to see these things so clearly. That in Jesus they have everything. That they have hope. That they have joy. That they have peace. That they have a restored relationship with their creator. He wants to remind them of this. And the question is, what is he doing? He's doing the same thing he's been doing the whole time, which is setting their focus on Jesus, setting their minds on things above. So he's telling them what they need to do, and then he's doing it for them because he knows how important it is. And then in verse 4, he says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So then he reminds them. He reminds them of what's in store for their future. You know, Jesus had a first coming where he came to make peace between us and God with his own blood. That was his purpose in his first coming. And then he rose from death, he ascended, and then he gave us a promise that he was coming back, that one day he will return. And this is actually what comes along with his return. When he returns... You know, there are a lot of things that are dark about our world. There are a lot of things that are broken about our world that we would desire to see fixed. There is disease. There is cancer. There is pain. There is death in our world. And the good news is that Jesus is coming back one day and he's going to do away with all of it. Like It will no longer exist And he will set up his righteous reign. Everything will be made right in this world and everything will be made new. This is the compelling truth that we are given. This is who Jesus is and we get to be a part of it. Like this is what what it means that we were dead and now our life is hidden with Christ and God. That, That day when Jesus comes back, when he sets up his kingdom, we get to be a part of it. We get to reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. So as the world is breaking apart, we get the promise that our Savior, our King, is coming back to make everything new and right. So everything that God had intended for creation will finally come to be, that all of these things will be done away with, and that that the new heavens and the new earth, they'll actually be a place, a perfect place, that all those who are alive in Christ, we get the promise to be a part of that. Okay, so what? So what? I have one big question, and that question is this. How do I give God permission to adjust my focus? So I want to get really practical with this. How do I give God permission to adjust my focus? So uh, you're going to hear some very simple ones here, some things that you've probably heard like 50 times before. Uh, and so it'll be important to remind you of them. So uh, the first one is this, engage with Scripture 
engage with Scripture regularly, daily engage with Scripture. Because uh, you can have a relationship with God, um, but uh, until it's the God of the Bible, it's kind of just whatever you make up in your own mind, right? So, so if you're actually not letting Scripture guide your relationship with God, then who knows what you could be letting something else that has some place in your heart become your God that you're following and you're worshiping. But the God of the Bible is the God that we're called to engage with. And the way we do that most clearly, the most clear way that he has revealed himself is through Scripture. And so I, I tell you to engage with Scripture. Engage with Scripture daily. This might be uh, uh, p- different people have different times that they do this, different, uh, different ways that they orient their life to this rhythm. Um, it might be in the morning for you, and you might not be a morning person. I can totally understand that. And so it might, it might be better in the evening for you, but that you would find some pattern in your life that works for you where you can engage with Scripture. Uh, the second one would be this. You guys got a guess? Is it up there yet? You can't see. Okay, good. You have a guess at what the second one is? Oh, good. Garth, yes. All right, very good. The second one, pray. Absolutely. That, uh, that, that we actually, uh, it's amazing because of what Christ has accomplished. There used to be separation between us and God. But now the veil has been torn and we have complete access to God. Where we can actually like talk to him and have a relationship with him. And he hears us, and he answers us. He responds to our prayers. This is an amazing thing. So I would say uh, develop. You definitely have patterns in your life of prayer because it's in those places where God meets us, where we can be really honest with God. If we're in the middle of a dark night of the soul, we can tell God what we're experiencing. We see those things in the Psalms even, where David had a really personal relationship with God. And, and it is through prayer where we, we make ourselves known to God, even though he knows us fully already. But there's something about that process for us that helps to form us, that, that helps to stir our affections towards him. And, and that brings me to my third one. That outside of engaging with Scripture and prayer, I would encourage you to figure out the things that stir your affections toward Jesus and do them. So I, um, these things actually could be different for different people. Um, uh, for some people, it's listening to music. For some people, it is just uh, times of, of meditation, reflection. Um, uh, for some people, it's the time that they spend with other Christians. Um, that that uh, It could be any of these things, but figure out the things that stir your affection towards Jesus and do them. So for me, I have two big ones. Um, one of them is music. Music is a huge uh, one for me, a place where I get influenced. And the other one is being out in nature. So uh, I actually enjoy opportunities to go out in the woods by myself um, head down to Starved Rock. That's an awesome place to go. Um, and, and just spend time with the Lord, um, tell him what's on my heart, um, and, and let myself be known to him, but then also hear from him. I take that time to read scripture to understand more and more about who he is. And so these are, these are things that you can do, but I want to talk to you about the music piece, um, because, uh, the, the power that music has had to shape my affections and to, to point my affections towards Jesus has been really um, influential in my life. And so um, I, I, I have a few songs. Every, there are like seasons of my life where certain songs hit me the same way every single time I listen to them. And it doesn't matter. And so, um, so that song for me right now is a song called For the Songless Hearts. And it's by a, a guy named John Guerra. And 
um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the song, and then I want to read the lyrics to you. So, so the song starts with a call to our hearts to approach Jesus' grave with joy. And then it talks about uh, why, why approaching Jesus' grave could even be a joyful thing for us. And then the way it ends is that it ends talking about the joy that Jesus has in approaching our grave. So I want to read these words to you. It says, Awake, glad soul, awake. The sun has risen long. Go now to his grave and bring a tuneful heart and song. When he was laid in the tomb, he laid right next to you. No one could hear your hopeless sorrow, but there he could hear you. When he was sad and wept alone, child, he wept for you. And when you were dead in a songless slumber, he sang and died for you. Awake, glad soul, awake. The Lord has risen long, and he comes now to your grave, and he brings a tuneful heart and song. I like I can't listen to that like every single time. I'm just like I'm weeping when I when I hear this song. Uh and and so I don't know, like I can imagine there were some of you who were like, okay, big deal. Like and, and I totally understand that. The point is not to get you to relate to that. The point is find what those things are for you. Those things that stir your heart up towards Jesus and engage them. Do them. Absolutely, scripture and prayer should be a part of that, but find those things that point your heart towards Jesus and do them. And as you do them, God will use them to rewire our hearts to create real change inside of us. Would you pray with me, please? God, I don't know what kinds of changes you might be calling us to, it almost certainly will include something that has to do with a setting aside of ourselves and a following of you. And so, Lord, I know that our hearts tend to uh, reject that. Lord, our hearts tend to hold ourselves up. And so, Lord, um, I pray that you would pursue us that you would reach out to us, that you would adjust our focus, that you would set our hearts and our minds on Christ, that we would have a sense of wonder, that we would have a sense of awe at who he is, just how awesome he is, that he would die for us, that he would give us the promise of a new life, that he would allow us to be included in something called a new creation. Lord, these are amazing things. And so, Lord, would you stir up affection for you in our hearts. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.